When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Our kids have said to us since we moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community and of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting and loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Welcome, dear listener, to Fear from the Heartland. I'm your host, Paul J. McSorley. Set aside some moments now and take an adventurous ride on a journey into the psyche of some talented writers. They will dig into your being and titillate you. Oh, I love that word, titillate. While the stories may not all take place in the heartland, I am delivering them to you from the heartland. My intention is to strike fear and confusion into the mind, soul, and yes, the heart. This is Fear from the Heartland. Heartlanders, and welcome to Season 2, Episode 9 of Fear from the Heartland. I'm your host, Paul J. McSorley. You're listening to the standard edition of this program. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy ad-free versions of this and all our other episodes, as well as hundreds of tales from our audio archives dating back to 2012, visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today to get instant access from our friends at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. Thank you for your support. Please indulge me a moment. I invite you to become a Hardlander. Join the family, so to speak. Quite literally, it is a family affair. I tell the stories. My wife, Nikki, is the show's producer. She makes me sound good. Writing original music compositions, sound beds, and custom sound design on every single episode of Fear from the Heartland. We work side by side to bring you the most professionally produced creepypasta and scary stories available. Award-winning authors, many exclusive to Fear from the Heartland, truly make my job so easy to tell you a creepy, blood-pressure-raising, psyche-crushing tale each and every week. Throw in wifey's efforts? Well... All aboard on the Titillation Express. 
One favor to ask. Whatever you're doing right now, stop, pause this, and smash that subscribe button. While you're at it, tell a friend or two. Become a Heartlander at Fear from the Heartland. I am happy to introduce a new author to Fear from the Heartland. Liam R. Woods submitted his story to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, who were gracious enough to send it to me to air here. I always know when I have a great story, when upon finish reading it, I can't wait to get behind the mic to perform it. Such is the case tonight. So, let's get after it. Clinton searches the world over to find just about anything, or hunt just about any animal, and he is willing to go to any degree to succeed, provided the price is right. The price seemed to be just right when he took a job to find a trinket, a valuable trinket located in a room in which the bones of dead people are placed. Clinton may have just found more than he bargained for. Now for your indulgence, The Ossuary by Liam R. Woods. Kicking in the boarded doors to the ossuary, Clinton shined his LED spotlight into the small church. The bright blue light illuminated pews, a pulpit, and a giant in disrepair crucifix above that, all draped in cobwebs. The skeletal remains of nearly a hundred people stared at him from mangled, crunched positions around the small chapel. They were morbid fixtures, carefully laying in the white canvas-colored walls. They encircled the church in a ring of remembrance. Black wide sockets glared at Clinton with unfeeling judgment. Swallowing hard, he walked into the forgotten holy edifice, quickly inspecting its inner foundation, much like he had so many times before when entering a cave in search of lost items or hidden treasure. Clinton carefully tapped the floorboards with the tip of his boot and scanned the walls instinctively for any odd formations or unusual shadows. He wished he was in one of his caves right now rather than this tomb. Everything was so different. When you enter a cave, you have to feel out the foundation as well as observe it. You have to watch where you put your feet, your hands, your everything. One misstep and you could fall into a precipice. It took work to get into a cave and truly enjoy its warm, vibrant underground. Here, it was like it was inviting him in, welcoming him to the cold, colorless nether. Shaking his head, he proceeded further into the church, disagreeing with the whole scenario of what he was doing. Clinton thought back as to how he had gotten into this situation. Walking through the small town of Antezula, Chile, South America was where he did most of his cavernous expeditions. He had done some out-of-the-way islands in the South China Sea, the coast of Japan, and even some exploring in Africa and its humid systems. He had been delivered a letter from one Emmanuel Constance. It said for him to meet her in a small restaurant just six blocks down the way at the Palmetto Sombra. It was a pretty restaurant for being in such a poor town. Clinton remembered it vividly. A porch faced the shaded side of the street surrounded by a wrought iron gate holding at least ten or so umbrella tables. Emmanuel was sitting under one of them and tipped her glass, a signal that she was waiting. An expensive briefcase sat next to her a good sign she was going to pay him in advance. Sitting down at her table, Clinton was slightly surprised by her order, a strawberry martini with a hint of rum. 
a light drink with a strong shot. A drink not for such a petite woman of five foot five and seemingly 110, maybe 120 pounds. She drank it quickly while Clinton had a cheap shot of pure rum. She got right to the point and said that she would like to acquire a family heirloom of some sort. She showed him some pictures of a silver ring with an ostentatious emerald jewel. Her rosy wet cheeks and tired faded eyes told him she didn't want it for financial gains. Her cracking sad voice told him she wanted it for a keepsake. Unfortunately, the family member connected with it, her sister, aunt or something, had been buried with it. It had been taken to a church that was now off limits to the general public. The only thing allowed there was either the dead or people attending to the dead, so she was not allowed. If she was caught there, she would be arrested. Emmanuel had heard of Clinton through some upper-class social circles and believed he was the perfect man for the job. Clinton had to disagree. He was a spelunking expert and cave negotiating master. On occasion, he was a paid hunter of dangerous animals. Pilfering human remains was decisively out of his league, or at least it was until he saw the kind of pay he would get for such a job. 30,000 USD and enough to pay for a plane ticket first class to a destination of his choosing. He dare not say no. This was how he found himself in the dreary chapel with the full moon high in the sky. The lunar light cascaded through the jungle, surrounding the church like pillars of twilight. The noisy orchestra of insects and fauna played loudly in his ears through broken stained glass windows. Croaking frogs, buzzing insects, the occasional monkey hoot, and every now and again, he would step on a shard of stained glass, cracking it loudly. This made the symphony play louder. It didn't help the already overwhelming anxiety he had from the stories he had heard even before accepting the job. The stories of a damned church of the dead, of an unholy tabernacle that was so overcome by dead spirits that no living thing was welcome there. Clinton believed in many things. He had to. Local legends and villager superstitions were where most of his jobs came from. Even the lion he had hunted in North Africa was believed to be a messenger of the devil. It died to gunfire though, just like everything else, demonic feline or no. It wasn't a question of whether he thought the place was actually dangerous. He just knew it wasn't anything like spirits or damned souls awakened from grim slumber by an odd jobs man. Some of the stories indicated that none would ever return. Not a trace of them was ever found. Maybe a few things on ground level, but that was it. The church was a three-story building. There was the ground floor, which was the floor Clinton was on. The basement, where the men of God had kept their paperwork, what little there was of it, with a few beds for the sick or the infirm. Then there was the lowest, most confusing level, the underground catacombs, the ossuary proper. There were nearly 20,000 buried in the stone-walled labyrinth. Clinton hoped he wouldn't have to go down there, but he figured he would have to, otherwise his expertise was moot. It still kind of was. Caves, natural caves, were unpredictable, but they gave you certain signs of which way you were heading. If you heard water, you were heading to a drop-off so watch your footing. If you heard wind, you were coming to an exit somewhere. If you saw the flora of the cave get slim, you were heading toward an animal's den. 
He was at a loss for what to do if he found himself turned around in a man-made tunnel network full of corpses. What was he supposed to do then? Check to see which way the skulls were pointing and hope they might lead him out? Sorry, lady, I stick with caves, Clinton thought. That's what he should have said. This is way out of my league. Why don't you ask some reverend or a monk to go down there for you? Any of that wouldn't have been too hard to say. He needed the money, though. He wanted out of South America. Maybe go to North America and scour through some of their caves. The Ozarks were always fun. Short and uneventful, but fun. He was next to the pulpit when he looked up at the cross. The planks were covered in cobwebs. Clinton's light showcased the shadows cast by the webbing and crucifix. That same sad, forlorn look on Christ's face, one of agony and regret. The cobwebs, a stark, silken blasphemy against his sacrifice. The cross looked like it was barely hung up. The nails hammered in were old and rusted. Even though with all the obvious signs of disrepair, it still came as a fearful shock when it tumbled down from the wall. It landed hard on the ground and broke into splintered pieces. The white clay body of Christ cracked and separated. If Clinton didn't know better, he could have sworn he heard a scream come from the broken icon when it fell. Finally catching his breath, he shined his light nervously at the broken crucifix. The pieces were shattered remnants of the Savior, his face nothing more than a pile of white dusty remains. Even a few spiders scattered out from the broken body of Christ, no longer having a solid home. Clinton wasn't the religious sort, but he was still scared about going down into the bowels of the dark church. A sign like that was hard to ignore, whether you believe in God or not. If you did, then it speaks for itself. If not, then you didn't want to imagine what might happen when you reached the older parts. They might just give way and bring the whole building down on top of you. $30,000, Clinton reminded himself. An extremely hard payday to pass up. Stepping over the broken symbol, Clinton found a door to his left. It was a small wooden door that looked like it hadn't been used in years, but he decided to turn the knob anyway. It creaked with age and whined with neglect. The gold-painted knob turned with some force, but even then, Clinton had to push with his shoulder to open the door. Sidestepping in, he shined his light down a long wooden stairwell with a stone wall to his right behind the old door. There were a few candle sconces on the right, but he had no means to light them. All he had was his trusty spotlight with eight hours of battery life, a backup flashlight for emergencies, some road flares, which he dared not waste on candles, and a few glow sticks. The bright LED beam pierced through the overabundant darkness, the steps barely visible even in the powerful ray of light. Wooden, rickety steps. It didn't take an architect to tell Clinton that this wasn't the safest idea. Edging his boot onto the first step made it cry out, just like the door had with age. Only this was more bass-filled, and it did feel a little sturdier than the door. Didn't mean that Clinton wasn't hesitant to walk down them. He sighed and proceeded down the stairwell. Just like crossing a ledge, he thought to himself. By the twelfth step, Clinton was feeling pretty good. He only had a few more steps to go before he reached the safety of the cement floor. This was actually easier than any cave expedition he had ever done. Maybe I should accept more jobs like this? Clinton thought. It seemed safer to scour old buildings like this than go cave exploring. 
Stepping on the next step, Clinton heard that same creak and relaxed. His weight suddenly gave way underneath as he heard a loud snap. His spotlight flew in the air, spinning like a damaged helicopter, landing a foot away from him. Meanwhile, Clinton tumbled down to the cement floor and landed face first. His legs folded into a pretzel between the steps and his chest ached with a punch from the last. After Clinton made sure he was still alive, he tried to lift himself. His left ankle locked up and a rack of pain ripped through that leg. He groaned, clenching his teeth as he turned to look at his discombobulated legs. He could feel them, but couldn't see them in the overbearing darkness. He pulled his right one out of the staircase just fine. His left one, however, seemed to come with a price. Pain again struck his ankle and leg like a lightning bolt. He couldn't see what had happened since his spotlight was pointed at the wall. Not wanting to risk damaging his left ankle anymore, Clinton crawled over to his light and grabbed at it like a chained monkey after food. Finally, he got his digits over the handle and pointed it at his bad ankle. The damaged appendage was a stark tan and red of flesh and blood. A breath of relief came over him. Oh, it was damaged, no doubt about that, but it wasn't broken or fractured. There was quite a bit of blood seeping from it, though. A simple rag around it, and it would be fine. Leaving the light on the floor, Clinton ripped off a piece of his shirt and wrapped it around his ankle. He tightened it as much as he could. The knot made in the fabric was the worst part. Still lying there, jumbled on the steps, Clinton could have sworn he saw something in the dark. It was fast and blurred. It looked like a person. A person with gray skin and a humongous head. It moved too quick, though. Faster than any person could have, or should have. Not to mention that even if there was somebody in the dark, Clinton shouldn't have been able to see them. It was too dark to see your hand in front of your face. He acted instinctively and grabbed his large flashlight, scanning for the mysterious person. Nothing. Sighing, Clinton stood up and favored his left ankle. He slowly put his weight down and felt just a tiny twitch of pain. He was already starting to feel better, however his neck was a bit stiff. He stretched his head a little, failing to get all the kinks out. That was okay, he'd get a good massage later. Forgetting about the gray person, passing it off as nothing more than a mind trick of the accident, Clinton walked further into the belly of the church. His powerful blue light glided across the cement floor in front of him. A long stone hallway lay out before him with encompassing blackness behind him. His light shined on a few different disturbing things. One was a lonely-looking wooden dresser. It had an icon on it and a candelabra. Some hints of melted wax were on the candelabra, but no candles. Spider webbing dangled from it, caught in the old wax. The icon was an intricate crucifix. The body of Jesus nailed to it in severe pain. The cross's three points blossomed out into another three cloves each. It was a classic, expensive-looking thing. Clinton wondered how much he could get for it. A ripe buyer? He could stand to make a nice extra profit. Picking it up to inspect it, Clinton felt a great searing pain streak through his hand. He yelled out and dropped the crucifix. It landed on the floor, and just like the one upstairs, exploded into pieces. Clinton couldn't help but curse. God damn it! He usually wasn't that clumsy with artifacts, but he usually didn't get hurt by them either. Shining his light on his hand, a long red mark was across his palm. 
like the icon had been searing to the touch. With his light ahead of him, Clinton saw two rows of cheap metal-framed hospital beds. They lay at opposite ends of the hallway, each one a stained flat rectangle identical to the other. Years of abuse and neglect led to their sorry states. He walked among them like in a graveyard full of unidentified tombstones. Clinton felt a cold, unnerving chill run up his spine and hoped that a body wouldn't appear in one of the beds. It was a ridiculous fear, but that didn't cause him not to think it. The last bed on the left had chains over the headboard. Clinton stopped and looked at it longer than he should have. An eerie, questionable feeling prevalent about the last one on the left. He couldn't help but whisper to himself, Why would they need chains? Then the bed itself seemed to change. It changed from its metal frame to a wicker frame. Green large leaves made up the matting, but not any trees from South American tropics. The cool chill in the hallway changed to a deep, arid heat Clinton recognized from the African savanna. The monotone buzz of mosquitoes filled his ears. His mind and body were somehow playing this evil sensory trick on him. It now looked like the deathbed of a little African boy he once knew. The boy was stricken with scarlet fever. The chains there to keep him pinned down so he wouldn't hurt himself when the fever caused involuntary spasms and Clinton was hired to delve into a cave far east from the boy's village for a plant that would save his life. Unfortunately for the boy, a wealthy drug organization had promised Clinton a much larger payday than the villagers. He'd already been paid by the common folk on good faith, so he delivered the plant to the pharmaceutical company instead of the boy. The boy was dead four days later, and Clinton was traveling, first class, to a different country by then, having escaped their proverbial torches and pitchforks. Yet here he was, staring down an empty African villager's bed in a South American chapel. The African sounds just as vibrant as they had been when the desperate villagers first approached him. Even the heat was as oppressive as it had been back then. He was in Africa right now, back in that village, looking at an empty bed. Turning from it, shaking his head, Clinton turned back and the bed was metal again. The chains still hung over the headboard. That cool, haunted air had returned, a reminder of where he actually was. Sighing with relief, he walked on. Just an effect of seeing the chains, that's all, he thought. That was a long time ago. So long, in fact, the boy would be a man by now, if he were still alive, but he's not. There was a comfort to Clinton in that thought. Locking his light on a basin sink, he went over to it and looked it over. It was just a simple porcelain sink. It looked a lot like a big snifter glass to Clinton. Blessed be, Clinton remarked scornfully. Turning from the sink, he proceeded down the dark stone hallway, his light almost giving him a full line of sight. When he reached the end, a metal plaque was to the left and written on it in both English and Spanish, please be respectful of the dead. If for any reason you believe that you haven't found a loved one or believe that a loved one has been misplaced, please get an Episcopal attendee immediately. One through 20,000. This was it. The descent into the labyrinthine underground tombs of the thousands dead. Clinton took a long, thought-filled sigh and walked down the stone slabs called steps. One foot after another, he sunk into a sea of blackness. 
darker than the darkest cave he had ever been in. It was even colder than it was on the sub-level above, giving Clinton goosebumps. His skin broke out as his breath made a plume. He could see it in the hint of his spotlight. When he reached the very bottom, he stepped in mush. Shining his light down, he saw he was standing in dirt. Dug up, laid out, colorless dirt. It looked like plenty of other dirt he had stood in, but somehow it was different. The very idea that dead bodies were in it perhaps changed it for him. He wasn't sure himself, but this dirt was void black, looking like big clumps of dark pepper. It had an ominous feel to it, like he would be buried in it. Once again, relying on his trusty handle spotlight, Clinton walked through the dirt onward. Cautiously, he flashed his LED beam in all directions. It was more of an instinctual movement than anything. You had to be aware of your entire surroundings when in a cave, above, below, and all around. The skeletal remains of the dead surrounded him. Each one lay in a small alcove in the stone walls, a number beneath each, artfully carved. Every skeleton looked roughly the same, laying down, staring upwards at their unseen bunkmate. Clinton had taken a few turns in the box-like tombs, looking for his prize. The underground crypts had less twists than what he initially believed. This still might be easier than he thought. He knew the exact crypt number, 14,704. Right now he was wandering through the 500s. He had quite a ways to go before he got to the right spot. The emotionless faces stared back at him. Blank, dead, decomposed bones with cold black blossom sockets glared at Clinton, almost like they were judging him for past deeds he had not yet answered for. He wasn't planning on answering for them either. He had done what he thought was right for himself. These skeletal onlookers could gawk all they wanted and judge him however they wanted to. They were dead. What could they possibly do to him? Though he did wonder why he didn't believe that. The cold down in the lower ossuary was different from any other. He wasn't sure if that was because the ground was cold or if it was something else. Something otherworldly? It skittered up and down his spine and delved into his skin like unseen tentacles that pushed through his flesh. It made him shiver as he headed through the dark underground. A thin layer of sweat began to gloss his skin. Usually it was caused by the oppressive, humid heat of the South American rainforests. Now, it was due to fear. Progressing through the 700s, a smell began to fill his lungs. It wasn't a pungent smell, just a disagreeable one. It was the smell of the long since dead. It was an unmistakable odor. After the horrendous, rotten stench of decay and biodegradation had gone, this was the aroma that was left behind, this mediocre, languorous air that catches your throat and stays there, making it itch and dry out. Coming to the first of the 1000s, Clinton saw a few names seemingly of Argentinian descent. Guvaro, Halbanero, Ferrario, Elliot Knight. Clinton stopped and shook with unbridled fear. His eyes widened and he reread the name eight times. He shouldn't. You shouldn't be here. Yet he was. Unlike the bones that surrounded the corpse, Elliot was nearly all intact. His stomach freshly rend from his body with blood running down the stone wall. 
his eyes wide open with dead dilated pupils that stared right into Clinton's soul. He looked just like he had when Clinton found him all those years ago in Africa, half eaten and wide eyed. The red river from Elliot's gullet ran over his carved name below his alcove. It made his name clearer than any number on any given slab. Elliot Knight was a partner of Clinton's a long time ago during his lion hunt in North Africa. He remembered everything about Elliot, even the way he had fed him to the lion to get away on the second night. He remembered how he screamed in the savanna darkness, a blood-curdling shrill that Clinton heard clearly as he ran for his life through the tall grass, the same tall grass the lion had been hiding in, waiting for them. Elliot's life-ending howl echoed through the night like a dying impala, a crystal-clear reminder to Clinton that he was out of his league. Clinton didn't feel he had a choice. He had shoved Elliot at the lunging dark yellow torpedo when it came for them. Neither of the hunters had time to react. Clinton just reacted on pure instinct. Elliot wasn't as much of an expert as Clinton. The young, zealous 20-something was just starting out. Of course he had to die, Clinton thought. An inexperienced whelp like that? He should have thrown himself in front of the lion to protect me. The expert cave explorer had agreed to show Elliot the ropes, training him up on how to hunt lions and other African wildlife. The very notion to Clinton that he should protect that rookie was preposterous. Elliot had to die. He had to. You had to! Clinton screamed at the blank-faced, ghostly white corpse of Elliot. The Red River made a pitter-patter in the dirt with crimson droplets, his stone-carved name outlined by the Sanguine Falls. Hearing a noise in the dark, Clinton whipped his light around and shined it at multiple skeletons, not a one looking like they had moved. They all lay there, motionless, skinless, lifeless. Hovering the beam of light over each one, even flashing it up at the ceiling, he began to breathe hard, trying to listen for the noise again. His light glossed over a figure standing not more than ten feet from him, a humanoid figure. Grayskin covered its emaciated body as it loomed in the light, its back to Clinton. Its spine protruded through its skin. Small skeletal bumps similar to crocodile spines ran along its skinny torso from its gangly neck to its grotesque buttocks. Long, dangling arms extended to its knees, swaying in the light, the figure dancing to some unknown music. A massive round head atop its shoulders, too big for the phantom's thin body to carry, it bobbed to the left and right, unbalanced. Clinton didn't wait around to see what it truly was. He ran from it. The light in his hand bobbed up and down as he ran. His left ankle dug into his leg with pain. He fought through it as he ran and turned corner after corner. He hoped against hope to never see or hear the gray person again. He lost count of how many corridors of skeletons he passed, how many forks he had turned down. Random directions were all he chose, not really thinking about any direction at all. He thought he was running, but what he really was doing was scampering away. Finally coming to a stop, gasping for air, he leaned over and fell to his knees. The loose soil filled his vision. Clinton's neck heard him something fierce and his ankle wasn't treating him much better. He shined his light on his left leg. His ankle was now mangled and bruised. Maybe he had re-injured it or something? It looked worse now than ever. 
A fist-sized, deep purple blotch covered it with bloodstains caked on his skin. Grunting with pain, he nearly tumbled into the dirt. His neck felt like it had hammers in it, and they were all pounding the same spot. He tried to turn his neck, but it was encased in stiff, transparent cement. Every time he tried to turn, it would scream with punches of pain. Grunting again, Clinton stood up and growled at both his ankle and his neck. Once he was to his feet, he looked around to see where he was. Maybe he could find his way back from numbering on the open grips. His light shined on one, reading 2,435,667. What? His mind screamed. That's, that's not possible. There's not that many down here. Not over two million. Where the hell am I? Flashing his light around, confused and afraid, Clinton began to walk back the way he came, knowing that there was a turn. He did come to a turn, but not like the last one he ran down. This one branched in three different directions. He could have sworn it hadn't earlier. Just a fork last time. Just a measly fork. Caves don't do this. Ignoring the new corridor, he tried to go down the one he had been through before. All the skeletons still gawked at him, forever part of the walls. They even seemed to be getting closer. Maybe he was delusional? Maybe he was imagining all this and he was just letting fear get the better of him? Clinton tried to calm himself as he headed down what he thought was the right way. Yet he could have sworn they hadn't been that close before. So close that he felt there was only two feet between him and the looming dead. The real problem, though, was the numbers weren't decreasing. They were increasing. 2,458,889, Hitting nearly 3 million, Clinton stopped and gasped for air. That thick air was now heavier, and that told him he was getting deeper. He had gone in a straight line, though. No matter what path or avenue he took, he had gone in a straight line. There were no more steps, no more lower parts. So how come he felt he was going lower? That cold stillness felt the same, but he knew the elevation had dropped significantly. He felt buried under miles of earth. Shining his light around to see something recognizable, he proceeded more slowly. The numbers slowly ticked upwards to three million. This wasn't right. Maybe if he went back, he'd already made quite a bit of progress through the corridor. To head back would be heading back towards the grave figure. He had to find a way out regardless. Going the way he was, he would hit bedrock by sunrise. Sunrise, Clinton thought. How good it would be to feel the sun's rays again, that warm South American heat. It was worth climbing, crawling, or even digging his way out of the accursed maze-like tomb, if only to feel the sun again. Forget that stupid, useless silver ring. Emmanuel could keep her paltry 30,000 bucks in first-class tickets. Clinton could find another job. Other jobs. True, maybe not one that paid as well, but definitely something in a cave or a grotto. Get back to his expertise. He'd give almost anything to be in a cave right now even one of those frozen ice caves in the Arctic tundra, if it meant not spending another second surrounded by skeletal walls. 
Smiling to himself, Clinton forced himself back. He nearly jogged through the skeletal remains, confident he was heading in the right direction. The long-since-deceased passed by him like a morbid Mobius strip. Bone pile after bone pile went by. He ignored the clawing pain in his ankle, the firm stiffness in his neck. He was determined to get back to the surface. Whether sun or stars, it was his primary goal now. All he had to do was find the cross corridors he had come by before. Maybe he missed that extra corridor the first time? He had run by it pretty fast to escape the emaciated figure. After what felt like half a day of walking and no crossroads in sight, Clinton fell to his knees. A cold sweat broke out over his body. Worn and waned, he sucked in more of that chilled, still lethargic air. He shined his light at one of the stone alcoves. 7,432,211 with a defeated and tired, damn it. Clinton sat back and leaned against the stone wall. His breaths were akin to gasps, as if his lungs were trying to reach out for sense of the situation. He looked down both directions and saw nothing but the same long stretch of stones and bones mirrored on each side. Clinton had to bend his knees as he sat there. He made the observation that the walls were now closer together than before. It was barely enough room to fit himself comfortably. Before he could have laid out and his head would have been pressed against the back wall. Now there was barely a foot from each wall, barely enough room to fit him erect, let alone sat there in oppressive darkness. As he stayed crumpled up for more than half an hour, Clinton heard an all too familiar noise again the sound of bleak, short shifts in the dirt. It sounded like sand being grated. He shined his light down the way he thought he heard it. To his left and right was emptiness. The spotlight flickered down both corridors. He brought the light to him and knocked on it, trying to get it to stop. He even shook it a few times for good measure. All it did was flash at him in defiance. Don't, don't you dare, Clinton whispered at it. The sound got closer. What little was left of Clinton's resolve and usually cool demeanor faded away. Like before, with Elliot Knight's mutilated corpse in the catacombs, a fear came over Clinton, stronger than any he had ever felt before. It strangled his chest and seemed embedded in the darkness that surrounded him. It drove into him like hooks, wriggling hooks that dug into his body. His spotlight took a few more blinks of light and then faded away as it left Clinton in total darkness. Cold, complete, unyielding, forlorn darkness. He heard the noise again and had his hands around one of his road flares in no time. He snapped it and it hissed to life with a bright red glow. A crimson luminescence pushed back some of the blackness, maybe more than his spotlight. Definitely enough to light a good radius around him. Getting up, Clinton held his flare like a strong torch. He left his spotlight on the ground and began to walk in a random direction. Trembling like a withered old man, feeling about as strong as one, he took each step carefully, like he was entering a cave. A cave that was getting bigger and bigger as the walls were getting smaller and smaller. The bones around him were so close by now that if any of them wanted to take a bite out of Clinton, they could do so with little effort. He sometimes scraped his shoulder against the stone walls as he slouched through the skeleton-riddled corridor. It was a small pain compared to his aching ankle and his locked neck. Clinton was so fixated on his goal, 
he hadn't noticed that the numbers were gone. Just blank slabs of stone underneath the skeletons were left. Tight granite stone walls littered with bones. Bones and stones. No more corridors or different routes. Just long pathway made up of nothing but bones and stones. The flare snapped a bit and then flickered out, leaving Clinton in the chill of buried darkness for a few seconds. He pulled out another and struck it to life. Like the first, it hissed with light, revealing the tight claustrophobic catacombs in red luminosity. Clinton walked onward, his feet like cement as he dragged them along. That ankle of his getting ever more painful by the minute, every step a strike of anguish. Forever slouching in one direction that when he came to a turn, it was a shock. A smile came at this revelation, but it was short-lived. He was met with a wall of night and heat. African night, African heat. Tall blades of grass brushed by his legs as he walked through the dim night. The buzzing of mosquitoes traveled on the oppressive wind that blew past Clinton. He nearly choked on it because of his stiff neck. In the distance was an object. It looked like a body. Approaching it, Clinton saw that this was indeed a dead body. It wasn't Elliot Knight, though, or even the small boy he had abandoned in Africa all those years ago. This dead body was his own, laid out in a clearing with his face down, his head nearly on backwards. His left ankle turned completely around with some wooden steps behind his corpse which led up into the sky. I remember this, Clinton whispered out. If he could have, he would have screamed but he was far too tired and far too filled with fright to do anything different. But I... I lived. God damn it, I got back up. Suddenly, something tight, strong, and mean grabbed his shoulders and turned him around. Clinton barely managed to stay on his feet, jerked by the powerful force. His road flare tumbled out of his grasp and onto the ground below. The gray, emaciated humanoid figure stood before him with its huge head. A roar blasted out of its mouth, giving Clinton a clear view of giant razor-sharp teeth. Yellow fur covered its cheeks and forehead in the shape of a giant mane. Green piercing cat eyes stared down at Clinton with rage and hate swirling inside them. The lion's mouth enveloped Clinton's head and bit it from his shoulders. After feeling his neck sever and all the blood spill out from his face, the inside of the lion's mouth faded into total blackness. Seconds later, Clinton was able to open his eyes again and he was sat in the stone corridor. His first flare in hand with that light sand grating noise coming towards him. He was back in the long shrinking corridor of stones and bones. Getting back up, he looked in the opposite direction of the noise. Tired, hurt, beaten and broken, Clinton began to shuffle his own feet away from the danger. Despite his stiff neck and destroyed ankle, he pushed himself onward. He had nearly no memory of what had happened to him before. He knew something bad had happened to him, something that had terrified him to his very soul. But what it was, he struggled to recollect. All he knew now was to get out of the labyrinth. Maybe this was the right direction? Once again, he left his spotlight behind and trusted nothing but the bright glow of his hissing red torch. He was still very unaware of the vanished numbers as he pressed on through the darkness. Didn't matter how long the corridor may be or how deep in the massive ossuary he was, Clinton would keep pressing towards the steps he had come down before to get out. To get away from that horrid figure, he would press on forever.
hope you enjoyed tonight's story, The Ossuary, by Liam R. Woods. Liam R. Woods is a mysterious writer who lives somewhere deep in the Ozark Mountains. All that's known is that he has had a passion for writing since the early age of five. He has written quite a few original stories you can read for free on fictionpress.com or fanfiction that's also for free on fanfiction.net. If you'd like to contact him, you can at Twitter, GoldenGecko at GoldenGeckoCR or at GoldenGex, G-E-X, at Hotmail.com. If you enjoyed tonight's story, hosted by yours truly, Paul J. McSorley, you can search my name on Chilling Tales for Dark Nights on YouTube for additional previous stories. If you'd like to hear more lengthy tales, be sure to take a look at my audiobooks. Available now on audible.com or just visit paulsbooks.net. That's P-A-U-L-S-B-O-O-K-S dot net. You can also find me personally on Facebook and Twitter. And with that, listeners, our weekly journey into the psyche has just about come to a close. But before we go, I'd like to take a moment to thank you for joining us for tonight's episode and remind you to take a moment to stop by our iTunes page and leave Chilling Tales for Dark Nights a five-star review and a kind word. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram if you haven't already. And of course, subscribe to us on YouTube, where you can find an archive of our work going back to 2012. And consider signing up as a patron at our website, ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com, to show your support and get all of our content ad-free. I'm your host, for Fear from the Heartland, Paul J. McSorley. I've enjoyed the titillation tonight. Ooh, there's that word again. Thank you for joining me. Hope to see you again next week at Fear from the Heartland. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community and of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community and of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community and of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. 
New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live.